out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest. Let's be honest. This week, it is going to be the turn of Alan McGee, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry. Yes, he of Creation Records, also Jesus and the Mary Chain, Primal Scream, My Bloody Valentine, Oasis, Sugar, and also with his current uh, record label, Creation 23. Anyway, this is the interview chat, um, and after several casual minutes of getting to know each other, we got down to that very exciting subject that it was the formative years. Alan, it's over to you. I was born in 1960 in Glasgow. Uh, I was brought up in Govan Hill, and then I moved up to Mount Florida when I met Primal Scream. You know, you know, like, and we were all at school. We were all at um, primary school together, and then I moved up at ten and eleven to uh, Kings Park Secondary, and Gillespie moved in from Springburn to to Mount Florida. So me, Throb, Beatty, who was originally in the band, Andrew, uh, Bobby, we all went to school with each other. That's the bit that nobody really knows about the scream and creation. It's a sort of school thing, right? And, and uh, and we all went to the gigs. Well, me, Bobby, and Andrew, we all went to gigs with each other. I was in, and there was another guy called Colin Dobbins as well, who ended up in Australia, one of my best friends. And uh, we were all just friends, and we were obsessed with glam, like uh, T-Rex. First single I ever bought, David, was uh, Get It On, which is cool. But the second one that I ever bought was Chippy Chippy Cheap Cheap, right? right? Middle so, of the road. Although it's not actually that bad, but it's like, but you know, it, there was, it was random. It was because it was ten. I was buying what's number one. It just yes. so happened that number one records in nineteen seventy one were good. Do you know what yes. I mean? You know, so did you well, did you did you also enjoy bands like The Sweet and Gary Glitter? I loved them. Yeah, loved them. Yeah, and and uh, I loved Sweet, Bowie, Gary Glitter, um, Slade, obsessed with Slade. Uh, just all the bands that you'd think, you know, and then even bands that you wouldn't think, because yeah. I started going to gigs um, probably when I was about 11, 72, and I saw everybody at the Apollo. I saw, this is where I get the music thing from, you know, because my parents were quite loose with me, to be honest. They, they were heavy on my sisters, but they, weren't, they, weren't, they didn't care if I went out. So I was going to shows at 11, 12, and uh, I saw T-Rex, Slade, Bowie, Sweet, Roxy, and then all right through to Queen, Santana, blah, blah, blah. I, I was early 70s. I, saw, I kind of saw most people would come to Glasgow. Yes. And up to, up to punk, which was late 76, I was going to gigs. I must have seen 50 or 60 shows. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And what were your parents listening to when you were growing up? What were their... Terrible music, you know what I mean? You know, it's like, uh, they were like, they would get their clothes, at the dress up to have like a couple of beers in the kitchen, right? Because there was no money in our, our family. Uh, and to put on uh, Tony Orlando, tie a yellow ribbon. Right. Records like that, man. You know what I mean? You know, and 
Uh, but as good as it got with Simon and Garfunkel, which is pretty good. Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, their music taste was shockingly bad. Yeah. You know? Well, my parents were into sort of that country and western, like Boxcar yeah. Willie and Jim yeah. Reeves. I just remember being really like traumatized by Jim Reeves, and still to this day, I can remember that experience. Like, my mum and dad were into Sydney Divine. Really? It's terrible. And it was a Glaswegian country and western star. <laughs> terrible. And they liked them. Yes. So that's what, that was easy to rebel against, though, wasn't it? It wasn't like your parents yeah. were like. Yeah. I don't know if I was doing it to rebel against them. I was genuinely just caught up in it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I was working because, I, I mean, I've got the music thing, but I'm also really driven person. And I, I, by the time I got to 11, I was doing pretty well, David. I, I got, because I couldn't get pocket money off my mum and dad because nobody had any cash in our family. So uh, and my dad said, go and get a paper job. Well, I did better than that. I got a paper job on, uh, not, not even delivering them door to door, on the street selling this newspaper called um, the Southside News. And it was paid for by advertising people, uh, by adverts. So the deal, that, the normal deal for the paper boys that would stand in the corner, and I used to stand in the corner of Victoria Road and Allison Street, you could sell 200 papers, and at 10 pence, the split was, was six pence to me, four pence back to the people, right? But me being me, David, which gives you a good insight into my character, I sussed out after the second week, or the first or second week, if I just go down an hour earlier than the guy, I beat him to it, and I just nick the papers, and then I just sell them, and I keep all the money. And that's what I did. Excellent. It's got to <laughs> be done. I was making 20 quid a week, and I was like, Oh, I'm good at this, you know. And that was uh, so right through my whole teenage, I was always had things like that going on. Do you know what I mean? You know, and I was always making okay money. Do you know what I mean? It's interesting because twenty quid a week back in those days, because my dad you know, was probably the equivalent of a of a man's full time pay packet. Actually. No, no, it was it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a man, but it was a, it was the equivalent of a an apprentice electrician. And I got a job being an apprentice electrician in seventy seven, right? I was 16, I was getting 17 pounds a week. And it, was, it wasn't lost on me that in 1972, when I was 11, I was making 20 quid a week out of like, yes. even the fucking selling them, you know? But I just remember my dad, you know, I, I don't know, it wasn't a lot, was it? It was, it was that kind of figure, you know? I mean, Glasgow was grim at that time, you know what I mean? You know, I'd, I'd, I'd no real, I mean, I'd no real intention of uh, leaving. Glasgow. I kind of got bullied into leaving Glasgow by Andrew Innes uh, in the primals and we, we came down together and I was in his band when I was about 19, uh, when we were in 1980 and Innes said to me, like, you know, it's only me and him in this band and he went, you're out of the band if you don't come to London, McGee. Right. So he me to come and I thought, I mean, we've nowhere to stay, David, we came down and we were, we were, we were Initially, the first 10 days, we were homeless. We were on the, the roof of Boots the Chemist, Covent Garden. And then I chatted up this really uh, exotic-looking punk rock girl called Karen. Uh, she was living in a squat in St Alphonsus Road and was chatted her up to the extent she liked me and she said, you can come back and stay at the, the squat. And that was, this, that was the one point I'd have to take it right back and say that was the moment that our luck changed. Because we were like 10 days down there in, in London. And it was, it was looking like, God, you know, we're going to have to go home. We've got no money. We've not got a job. Yes. You know, we're like, guitars haven't been saved. 
And then it was like, oh, this girl's going to let us stay in a squat. And for the next six months, I stayed in the squat, then I got a bed set. And Ennis, Andrew Ennis, uh, he was in the squat for about a year, a year and a half. And then, unfortunately, he got ill, you know. So he went back to Glasgow and I was down, you know. Yes. So then, because then, during that period, um, Thatcher, we had the Falklands and, and obviously a lot of high unemployment at the time. And there was a lot of people signing on and Job Seekers Alliance and Enterprise Alliance. So, yes, did you go on that route, you know, the, the kind of signing on route? Yeah, yeah, I did. I got the... Uh, thousand pound bank loan i know where did that come from everyone just had a thousand pounds suddenly well it was the same thousand pounds do you not know that <laughs> we all used to send a thousand pounds round. you know <laughs> i did it for one or two people because i had borrowed a thousand pounds off the nat west and uh, i paid it back but i used that to really start the label ultimately um uh, but yeah i loaned a thousand pounds out to a couple of people to get on the scheme yeah and i know up in Manchester, a lot of my bank mates, you know, the Mondays and people like that, they were doing the same, you know. I only met them at that point, but they were all sending the, the £1,000 round them all so they could all get on the scheme, you know. Which was quite amazing. So were you in a band to begin with? Was this the band? Yeah, I was in I was in little bands. I mean, me and Bobby uh, Gillespie, that's like my oldest mate. Uh, I got him into punk. I'm about nine months older than him. And when we were about 16 or 15, 15, He'd be 14. I took him up to listen record shop because I'd seen this uh, in the record shop, Johnny Rotten going fucking crazy. And I thought, this is incredible. And I took him up and I'd say we were the first, the first six punks in, in Glasgow were me and Bob in the South Side, Jim Kerr and Charlie Burchill in Simple Minds, just in Tory Glenn, Ian Donaldson in H2O and Jake Black, who sadly he died recently. And uh, then nine months later, September 77, punk had caught up, Glasgow had caught up with punk. There was about 2,000 people at Ramones, Clash, you know, skid skids, you know what I mean? Yes. But, um, but yeah, we were, the, we, were the first, we were the first punks, you know. Did Glasgow. you feel quite patriotic to your Scottish roots, like the skids, the Bay Rollers? Yeah, well, I'm best mates with Jobson. I love them. I love Jobson. But uh, I quite like the Rollers. Scottish people are quite proud of Scotland, but I can't be a hypocrite. Uh, David, I haven't lived there since 1980, and I'm like I'm nearly 60 now, dude. Do you know what I mean? I'm 16 two months. So, so you know, I mean, I don't. I mean, I love it, but I don't love it that much. I don't love it enough to go and stay there. You know? Yes. <laughs> it's <laughs> one of those Scottish people. I love Scottish people, and I love I loved a lot of aspects to Scotland. But I've lived in. I mean, I've lived in London for 40 years now, and you know, what I mean, that's what it is for me. London's London's the greatest. You know. Yes, absolutely. So then as your as the eighties progressed, you were in the band. But then when did you start the label? Uh I started the label early. Eighty-three, I was twenty-two. Right. Uh, I didn't really know what I was starting. I mean I started a club called the Living Room that I know you know about. And I'd I'd, I'd had a club before then called the Communication Club, six months before when I was twenty, twenty-one, twenty, I think. And I put on some shows with, with a legend. You know, and all my pals played it, and then I booked on go, I booked in Go Betweens, Laughing Clowns, um, TV personalities. That's when I first met Dan. Yes. Uh, and I met all these different people, but it failed really. You know, I mean, it was the one before the living room, and it failed. I mean, I was losing. I was, I was, I, was, I had a British Rail job, right? Worked for the railway, but I was still losing about a hundred to two hundred 
pound a week, and I couldn't afford it. You know, so after eight weeks, it didn't work. I stopped doing it. Right? So the living room, the living room's become quite famous mainly because of Neil Taylor. Oh right, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, six months later, I started the living room, and I had no idea it was going to blow up. But sometimes, I thought I found with different bands, you just don't see it coming. It just it blows up. Mary Chain were a band like that, but and uh, Oasis were a band like that. Certain bands just go, you know what I mean? And uh, I started this club. And I put it on and about 200 people showed up to like, everybody says different. I think I could get, you can won't believe this, but I think I could get about about 100 people into the club. You know what I mean, you know? Yes. But, uh, but, 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 but 200 would pay, David, right? Because part, and it was, it was a couple of pounds to get in, because part of the charm of it was you couldn't get into the room even though you paid your two pounds. <laughs> <laughs> So whoever came up, we would we would stamp their hand and take their money. So we were doing pretty well. We were yes. it, that it got, it got off to an app. I think we put the price up after a couple of weeks because there was a demand for it. But we were making good money out of two or three nights a week in the living room, Friday, Saturday, and sometimes one during the week. So we were making about six six hundred pound a week out the club, and um, and and that's why that's how it funded my label. So yes. I think when I was about 22 and I was making about £600 a week at a club, I was like, oh, I better put some records out. Because initially I was just getting drunk, David, do you know what I mean? And then, and then after about three months of getting drunk, I thought, this is not what you should be doing. It's a great chance to put records out. I started putting, again, all the people that were playing my club as the support bands, like, you know, um, you know Mary Chain, Primals, Jasmine's, Loft. X-Men, Pastels, I put them, I put all the records out, you know, and that was kind of the bulk of the first 20 singles in creation came yeah. from that time and finding these bands, you know. Because we were, you, we were, you were lucky, not lucky, but you had the game. Was, the, a, lot, the, a lot of us luck. You just time. Kind of, everyone, everyone yeah. talks about timing, don't they? Yeah. And you got to know, you got to know what's good. You know, if you know what's good, you get the timing right. And you have luck, then you probably got it all. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, it, it lines up. But we had the gatekeepers, didn't we? We had the John Peel show. It's a play on John Peel was good. Then you had the NME Melody Maker Science and Record Mirror. So, so you know, because because every town had an alternative night, didn't they? Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, around yeah. the country. So, and yeah. and all these random people who were recording the John Peel show would just probably turn up because you'd put three gigs on for two quid or three quid, and it was like. You want to go and see it. So at the time, you don't realise it, but it's quite brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, I used to get annoyed with the music papers all the time. But really, you look back at it, it was brilliant, really. You know what I mean? Because there were certain journalists like Paul Morley, Dave McCullough, you know, that, that at, that, at that time were really big gatekeepers. And Steve Sutherland was another one, you know, and they really... They liked what they liked, and you could saw. I think Simon Reynolds used to work for the for the Melody Maker, and that's what was great about it. You know, that if you got to these people, then they would write about you, and people would pay attention, and blah blah blah. I mean, now it's just it's so random, isn't it? There's a bit, you know. There's no there's no gatekeeper, but the gatekeeper is quite an amazing one, like that John Peel, because everyone everyone needs to progress, don't they? You know, if you're in a band and you're just late for twelve months. 
and you're just playing in front of your friends, family and anybody else you could emotionally blackmail. You're just after a while thinking, what is the point? But then if you can get a gig in Leeds or Glasgow or Brighton, Bristol, you know, you get in your van, you do it. You know, you can at least pretend that it's all going terribly well. <laughs> you know, and you play in front of people you've never met before. And that's kind of good. So obviously the living room had sort of picked up that sort of vibe, hadn't it? Yeah, and the living room was brilliant. I mean, it was a great... I mean, some of the people that I met there, you know, like Jerry Thackeray, who's a legend, uh, brilliant guy. Um, the Jasmines, brilliant people. Pete Astor, love him. I mean, you know, plus Mary Chain, you know, came down and done their first ever show at Living Room. And uh, I mean, these people, I, I know them all to this day, you know what I mean? You know? Yes. And it's quite interesting because a few years later, you have that place called the Oh, is it the ambulance station? Which is yeah, also another yeah. squat, and yeah. that's another venue. Which it does we, have it. Every second ever London gig for the Mary Chain at the ambulance station, and yeah. it was a insane gig, man. You know, it was, it was crazy. You know what I mean? And I, listened you... to, I listened to your uh, podcast with Gordon and Sandy. You know what I mean? And I actually, I forgot they were actually a good band. I always thought they weren't that good, and then I listened to it. And I went, actually, I was wrong. You know, I mean, they were pretty cool. You know. They were good, yeah. I was a bit surprised. I was thinking, God, considering they probably weren't being that focused. Because because 83, because I've got indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which is the years yeah. of the Smiths. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you definitely you you definitely had a lot of jangly bands, didn't you, at that point? Yeah, well, we were, we were, what were we going for? In my head, it was like, we were going for like the punk rock aesthetic with psychedelic music. Yes. And the walk. And we kind of kept to that just about, because if you think about it, that the last bands that I signed to Creation at the end, well, mid-90s mid and the end of the 90s, but like Oasis and Super Furry Animals, that's kind of what they both were. Kind of like punky, spirited bands with kind of slight psychedelic yes. modern edge to them, you know what I mean? So when you saw Momus, yeah. You signed Momus, and I've done interviewed Momus, dear old Momus. Quite a legend, isn't he? So what, yeah. what was it about him that you thought must get that well, guy? He, he moved, I mean, that's just Nick. I mean, I don't know Nick anymore. I've, I haven't seen him for years. But, but, but why I initially got into it was he's, just the songwriting was, was amazing. And he put some records out with L, and it really hadn't happened. I think he'd sold about 600 copies or something like that, you know? And uh, I just said, well, I mean, everybody at that, by that time, it was about 87, David, and everybody was paying attention to my label, 86 maybe. And I just said to Nick, come and we'll put you out and we'll try and promote you better. And that's what he did. And I think, I don't know how many albums I did with Nick. I think he was with me till about 93. Yeah. So four or five albums out by him. Well, it's interesting because you had Nick and yeah. Lawrence from Felt, and they were putting out a, a, a record Lawrence. a year, weren't they? For, for, for yeah. that. He's amazing. Loved to still. I mean, I mean, I, during the lockdown, I contacted him just to check he's alive. You know what I mean? Because you know he can be a bit, <laughs> bit left at the light slums. And uh, and then I, I got the answer machine two days in a row, and I was worried about that. And the third day, it rang out, and I thought, well, if he's charged his phone, he's got to be alive. So and then we've texted about a month ago, and it's cool, you know. So because yes. because I don't. I've done interviews with the guys, the, the, the couple who, who started Sarah Records. They had no idea what they were doing. You know, they didn't even know what an invoice was. So how did you kind of kind of navigate running a label? Because it doesn't, it's not as easy as it sounds. I could do it. I could do it for day one. I did, in the beginning, David, nobody knows us. 
I did all the royalties myself. Uh, all the deals. And, and to this day, with Creation 23, that's where I'm going with it as well. It's a 50-50 profit split. You know, we pay the cost, you get 50% of the profit. And I, and, I, and I wasn't using contracts from 1983 to 1992 when I signed to Sony. Uh, I, only, I always signed to Sony because I was going bankrupt. Do you know what I mean? Because yes. even though I had Screamadelica, Bandwagon-esque, Loveless, Ride, I'd had massive records. Um, we'd, we'd started with no seed money. So we were, we were, we were, we were totally out, you know. And then Sony came in and, and offered me a, offered me a load of money. Do you know what I mean? You know, so um, so that that's what it was. Yes. So how did you how did you manage then? Because most people get to that point where they run out of steam, which is normally around that five five um, five year mark. You know, where they've you know with a band, you know, they've sort of fallen out. There's no money, and they're just all exhausted. But how did you manage to keep your enthusiasm for running a label when you were having kind of more problems than than sort of success financially? Sorry, say that again, David. Sorry. I was just saying that most people run out of steam after five years because they're just all a bit tired yeah. and exhausted. You know, mostly they've fallen out, they've got no money, there's no reason to keep it going. So they, that's the end. And obviously running the label, you were sort of, sort of releasing amazing records, but you're also losing money and having more issues with some of the bands that you had on your label. So how did you manage to keep yourself thinking, no, this is still a great idea? Because I just love music. And that's the only thing I could do, really deep down, you know what I mean? And yes. I didn't have any choice, I had no education. So I had to make music work. So that's why I made it work. Yeah. You know I mean? And it worked really, it worked amazingly well for me. But I had to, I didn't have a choice. I didn't have any other thing that, if I hadn't done music, David, I would have been a, at best a bus driver, but probably a labourer. And I knew I'd be old and I couldn't do it. So I'd be like on benefits in Glasgow, 25. Yes. So music was the only thing I could do. And what, so did you, and what were your parents, what were your parents thinking when you used to get in touch with them? And they go, how's it going? You go, still alive, but not my really. My mum was all right. My mum, my mum died about 30 years ago. My mum was into it. And my dad, you know, my dad, my dad say, he never understood it. Do you know what I mean? You know, you know, my dad never understood me, David. Do you know what I mean? Never mind. What I was doing, you know what I mean? He was just, I think he, I mean, I've got two kids and I think he still thinks I'm gay. Do you know what I mean? You know, <laughs> <laughs> my dad. Do you have that kind of, because is it Alex Ferguson? He comes from Glasgow, doesn't he? That kind of hard, yeah. you know, yeah. is that part of what's part in your DNA, that kind of work ethic of turning up early, working? I'm not, I'm not a million times to someone to Alex Ferguson, except he's a lot more successful than I'll ever be, you know. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it's the same kind of Scottish Presbyterian Calvinistic approach that you just you work and you must work hard, and that's what I've always been like, you know. Yes, and you always had a bit of a funny attitude to the C eighty six world, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. the cassette. I'm, I've softened up now to it. Do you know what I mean? Now I'm like, because I mean. I spend, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I listened to ten of your podcasts last week. You know, I mean, I'm like, I'm love that, I love your podcast. But uh, now I'm open to it. Do you know what I mean? But back then, I don't think I liked the media telling me and my bands what we were really ultimately. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, these kind of things. Do you know what I mean? Because see, before 
the Oasis thing, to be honest, I think I was blamed for C C eighty six. I was definitely blamed for that. Shoegazing. Uh, I was blamed for almost every thing <laughs> that came up for quite a long time. Yes. Earth, you know. I know, but you obviously you loved that kind of sound because you put you said you put on the the go betweens who were you know the laughing clans from both from Australia I think so you obviously had a penchant for sort of jingly jangly pop and I the did. jazz you know yeah. you de didn't you definitely loved it so obviously you know that 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 sort of was part of your musical makeup but then you know as as we know sort of eighty seven the Smiths break up then ecstasy becomes that big thing and then the dance scene but you were sort of not going into that that world so much as the kind of more the my bloody valentine world i think we were in more more in it than you think i mean you gotta think primal scream how that how that happened was that i'd get into the i was always up in manchester and uh, i'd get into the the acid house thing and the, the drugs you know the ecstasy in a big way and i was telling bobby gillespie who'd put his second primal scream record out Saying you know, and I was saying you've got to get into this, you know, like this music. I was hanging out with the Mondays, and I and they had like just got Andy Weatherall and Paul Oakwell to remix Hallelujah was massive, and Bobby was fighting me off, you know, no, no, no. And then I took him to a show, David, uh, Sean Ryder put an E in his mouth and Screamadelica, literally about fifteen months later came out. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like that. So we were there. Well, well, loaded came out. Sorry, um, but um, so I was always, I was, I was, I mean, I, I mean, we put out, arguably put out some of the best records of that time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, Delic is a masterpiece, really. But um, yeah, we were in, we were, we were, we were going to these clubs, but we were still signing the Valentines, Ride, Moonshake, Slow Dive, Swerve Driver, Telescope. So we were still signing. A lot of grungy yes. bands, but equally we were putting out the sound of Shum, Fluke, Primal Scream. Uh, we made the Jazz Butcher go Acid House at one point, and like, <laughs> so we were. It was two. I was in two places at the one time. Do you know what I mean? How were you dealing with? Because there's a there's a big roster of bands and some really extreme kind of. I would call them artists like Pat from the Jazz Butchers. You had felt. You had. Momus, you know, and, and then sort of people like the Valentines, and then you, you were sort of getting into people like Silverfish as well. So how were you sort of coping with dealing with all these people as well as, because they, they, I wouldn't say they, because I, I don't know, but they, they sound like they probably weren't making you any money, those bands. They weren't, they weren't. I mean, we were nearly bankrupt from 87, David, to 94, when Oasis properly started to break. We were nearly bankrupt for like seven years. Yeah. Time, man, you know? Because in the 70s, you used to get those big record labels that would put out, uh, I don't know, was it Harvest? Where they yeah. would sort of basically lose money on all the, all the bands, yeah. but they were great. It was great that someone did it. Whereas you're, you were an independent label just losing money on lots of brilliant bands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and in your book, you mentioned that, you know, you had a bit of issues with the, my, uh, my Bloody Valentine because yeah. you, you were talking about sort of having to give them all this money while your mum was ill and you were feeling like, Jesus, give me a break, guys. You know, I've got a lot on my plate here. That, that must have felt, you know, how did you emotionally cope with those kind of personal issues with your mother as well as kind of difficult pop stars? 
Yeah, I mean, with the label, I suppose I self-medicated my way through it, to be honest, you know what I mean? And um, with, with my own, you know, family situation, with my mum dying and everything, it was just, it, it was just like, I mean, it's a terrible time, but everybody that's had a, lost a parent will understand, you know, it's just, you know, it's terrible, you know? Um, I just kept going, do you know what I mean? You know, and then, uh, when the Valentine's cost, I think it cost, ended up costing about just over a quarter of a million to make that album, which nowadays isn't that much. But back in 1990, an indie label, indie labels were spending 10, 15 grand on an album. Yeah. We were 170 grand. So it was like, it was really out of kilter. But I don't even regret doing it on any level because the music was so good. I mean, arguably, we never put out a better record than My Bloody Valentine, Loveless, you know? Yes, absolutely. But then, because interestingly, I remember at the Art Centre, there was a double bill with My Bloody Valentine and Silverfish, who, who you both got on your label, didn't you? So you would, it was amazing that you had your sort of success with Primal Scream and, and then thinking, no, I'll still put out these kind of really niche marks. Same time, David. It was, it was a crazy time because what happened is we'd broke the Valentine's, which isn't anything. It went gold or something like that. And we started recording Loveless. And the scream were out of their heads. But we were just, when we could get them for about a week, we would put them in the studio. And then I'd take this, the mixes to Andy Weatherall or Terry Farley or The Orb or Jimmy Miller, if it was a rock song. And I'd get it mixed. So we started collating Screamadelica. We had no idea they were going to come out at the same time. They weren't meant to. They were meant to come out. Primal Scream was meant to come out the back end of 1990 and ended up coming the back out of 1991. And the Valentines was meant to come out the beginning of 1990. They were both late. In the middle of that, David, I signed Teenage Fan Club and started making Bandwagon-esque. And yes. they then were late, right? So three late albums, really late albums, beyond late albums. We're going bankrupt, let's fucking put them out now. And we put all three out. And within six weeks, we started 23rd of September, 1991 with Screamadelica, October, Teenage Fan Club, can't remember the date. And then beginning in November, I think the 9th of November, 1991, we put out Loveless. So yeah. it was in six weeks. Could you imagine, I mean, one record like that a year, and you're looked on as like, what a label. We put out three records like that in 1991. And then right after that, beginning in 1992, we put out the first St. Etienne record. Actually, St. Etienne came right at the just the tail end of 91, and then we put out the Boo Radleys. So it was five records in six months that were like all fantastic records. So, so in a slightly nerdy way, right, so most indie labels, let's go for Sarah Records, you know, there's just two people in, the, in a flat. You, you, how did you manage to sort of create a company that had sort of like a PR department, an HR department, you know, <laughs> um, you know and all the, all the necessary things that make a company run? Because you're, you're obviously starting from scratch and you're not being sort of given any guidance by a bigger label or a mentor. So how were you suddenly thinking, Jesus, I've now got to work out how to employ people and, and stuff like that, which I always find vaguely fascinating. We did it. But we struggled with it as well, man. You know, we were like, I'm not a natural leader. You know, what I mean, I'm not. I mean, I mean, maybe my bands might disagree, but I don't think I'm. So we ended up at that time, early '90s. We had about twenty-five people working for me in, in England and a couple of people abroad. And when Oasis broke, 
we had about 50 people working for us in the UK. Too many, but, but literally we had about 50 people working for us. And uh, we had 50 people outside the UK working for me who were all like, I think we had two in Germany, with one in many of the other places, maybe two in America, each coast. And they would promote my records worldwide. And then a Sunday for me, David, was like this. And you would get 15 minutes to tell me why the record wasn't on the radio in Los Angeles. And then I'd go to Belgium and then he'd to tell me why the record wasn't there. And I would just, I would just interrogate everybody for a day. Right. What for me, I go, why does this not happen? Why, why didn't, why didn't you come into work on Thursday? It was like that. I would just interrogate my staff to get the best results. Excellent. God. That's a management book, isn't it? So look, in the 80s, one of the best bands was all the way from Minneapolis, Huskadoo. So then yeah. Bob Mould comes out, you know, and frankly, they have a lot of drug problems, don't they? And, um, yeah. and, sexu- and the whole sexuality thing. I don't know. Um, so they, yes, and then Sugar, you know, he does a couple of solo albums, which I got, yeah. and I thought, wow, they're brilliant, but probably sold more than, I don't know, a couple of thousand. Yeah. Um, but then Sugar comes along, and you're thinking, and that's amazing. So how, why did you sort of take a gamble on that one? Because he's a superstar guy. He's a great guy. And uh, I, I was coming off the back of the big records of, uh, we spoke about, like, you know, fan club, primals, Valentines, and, and he liked all that. And then he, his two solo albums had come out in Virgin and they'd bombed. And then I took a meeting with him. And I love Bob, but he was trying to spin me on that they were quite successful records. And I'd already checked. You could used to be able to check on SoundScan what records had done in Europe and America. And they'd both done nothing right. So basically I said, I'll sign you and I'll revamp it, but I'm only offering you X. And for about six months, I think he thought that I would buckle, but he forgot that I had all this other stuff going on. So I was never going to buckle, you know? And uh, about six months later, when he finished the record, because he came and played me about four or five tracks. And I thought it's great and I can do it, but I'm not going to pay 200 grand. I'm going to pay X. Not nowhere near that, right? And uh, and then I and, and then he came phoned me and he went, okay, let's do it. And then, then I mean, I just signed to Sony at this point, right? And ninety uh, two, and the first record out, I think the next month, that record went in the top ten everywhere in, in, in Europe, and it started breaking in America, and uh, and I think it ended up doing about four hundred thousand in the UK. It was pretty big. You know, yes, and that tour, I went on, you know, I saw them several times on that tour and um, and it was absolutely sold out. I mean, they had the track, track called Changes, which was just a, you know, yeah. radio, I don't know even if it was a single, it should have been a single. Brilliant, anyway. Bob. He's absolutely brilliant. We had a lot of success with Bob, you know what I mean? Yes. Did you feel a bit, dis- did you put out Beastie for him? The next I did, I did Copper Blue, Beastie, then the third album, I think. Yeah. And I think when great. I was in rehab in 94. Early '94, that that third album came out, and then he wrote an, an, a letter to me and went, "It's been amazing. I'm just going to go and he just didn't wait. He wasn't about us. He just wanted to go and do his thing. You know what I mean? So I think that was it. We, you know, we, we put out three or four albums by him. Yes. So when you signed to Sony, was that a kind of a really big gig? You know, for you, was that a big kind of moment? It was, it was good in the world. I mean, it was. Look, it was. It was good in a couple of levels. I was going bankrupt, David. You know, we had about 1.2 million pounds worth of debt. 
And, you know, there was literally people coming around and threatening me the whole time. And I was like throwing them out of the office. Oh, that's, <laughs> I mean, it was a mad time. And, uh, and then Sony came in and paid that off. And then paid me a few million for uh, 49% of the company. And then we trundled on, you know, and, and uh, it was still going down. It was, believe it or not, it was just, it was, it's what you said. It was it, the structure of it, the amount of bands we had, we were, it wasn't going really sharply down, but it was, it was like the, it was like the Titanic. It was going down. <laughs> And uh, luckily, I ran into the Gallagher's, and that's what changed it, you know. And if you can imagine, you're going down like the Titanic, and then suddenly, boom, you just went up in a rocket. Yes. And that rocket went up for three or four years. Because it was quite interesting, because on a simplistic level, you had the, you know, indie world, then you had the, the kind of the, the dance stuff, then you had the grunge world, and then there was a kind of a change, because every scene only lasts about two to three years before it becomes a bit kind of like... Shit, <laughs> you know, bands are joining, bands are kind of entering it, but they're not really part of the scene, yeah, are they? Really, Oasis. I mean, Manchester had happened in their head. Oasis were Manchester. That's the bit nobody gets because what they were was Roses musically, Monday's attitude. Do you know what I mean? You know, that's kind of what it was. Except the singer was really, really good looking, right? So I just thought this so up my street. I mean, my favourite. One of my favourite ever bands is Happy Mondays. So I was like, right, we'll do that. I signed it for next to nothing, David. Signed it for 40 grand. And uh, it just exploded. So um, is it is it on the story, which probably everyone asks you, is it right that, that you went to see the support band or the other band and then... Yeah. What, what who, what's that? I went to see a girl. This girl that I was kind of seeing on and off who's I'm still friends with to this day, Debbie, she was in the band Sister Lovers. And I went to freak her out. You know what I mean? And just because, like, she was, like, one practically my best friend, you know what I mean? And, like, we'd been kicking about since the back end of the 80s, about 89. This was now 93. And, and I found out she was doing a show, and it was going to be a first show. And I thought, I'll just show up and freak her out. It'll be funny. And, uh, and then... I had two other bands on that night. I wasn't involved with her band, but I was involved with Boyfriend and I was involved with 18 Wheeler. I didn't know Oasis were going to play and I, I showed up because I was kind of chasing the girl ultimately, you know what I mean? And uh, there was a kind of like, there was a kind of awkward uh, moment when I got in because it was like Glasgow City of Culture. Everything was two hours delayed and there was these Manx scallies there was in the corner that Debbie had brought up and there was this band called Oasis. And this kid who looked like kind of George Best decked out in, a, in an Adidas tracksuit, giving it loads of attitude. And I just thought, well, he'll be the drug dealer. And then the baldy guy. And, and I'm thinking, well, I bet you that's a singer. And this was Bonehead. But an hour and a half later, somebody went, that band's on. They'd, black, they'd intimidated the security to get on, on the bill. And I wandered on up the stairs. And it's, I heard rock and roll star. I was there with my sister, Susan, and I was like, oh, they're good. And then they went to bring it on down. And I, I could sell this. I'm thinking immediately, the Roses have been away for five years. I can nick in and sell 100,000 albums of this. That's, I didn't think they were going to be superstars. I just thought they're going to fill a gap. Yeah. I, can, I can grab the cash and we, we, you know, we float on. And uh, 
you know, then they played uh, Bring It On Down, and then they went, oh, we're going to play a Beatles song, uh, a I'm the Walrus or whatever. I think he didn't even say that again. It's a Beatles song. And, and I thought, oh, you're going to fuck it up now. Because everybody played bad Beatles covers in 1993, right? May 93 it was. And, uh, and they nailed it. I thought, fucking great. And then I went up to the sound guy who I knew, Mark Coyle, who actually ended up producing the first album. Um, I said to Mark, uh, who's the manager? No manager. All oh, right, okay. Who's the leader of the band? This guy, no. Go and get him. This guy, no, trundles on down the stairs. Please we could say it. I went, do you want a deal? And he went, who with? Didn't recognise me. <laughs> anyway, a little bit well known, you know, and maybe you know in London, no Manchester. And uh and uh and he went, who with? And I went, creation. He went, yes. And then we just sat and we talked about punk and uh the Beatles, kind of what they are. And uh and about 20 minutes later, we shook on it, and that was it. And then I phoned them. The next day and went, I'm going to send up train tickets, come down and meet us. I still hadn't really, I'd asked them to sign to me, but in my head I was, I was like, if they're a bunch of dicks when they come down, I ain't fucking signing them. Let's see what they're really like. Yeah. And they were amazing. They came down, Liam, Bonehead and Noel. I sat chatting to Noel mostly. Again, about, about music and then I, we shook on it for good. I went, we're going to do it. And then it still took me, David, five months to get them signed. But we signed them. So on the, you know, because I did see the film, that's a, they, they kind of make out that you didn't, in the film, that you didn't know who you'd signed, but you did know who you signed. Because it was like you were out of your head and you just went, yeah, I'll sign that band. Oh, fuck, what have I done? I've signed Oasis. Yeah, that's- it was a bit like that. It was kind of like that. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's like I didn't really, you know, I, I said, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't smashed, but I was like not completely. I mean, I thought maybe it's a drink of the drugs. <laughs> Been taking you know that whole weekend. Maybe they're not quite as good as they are, but he yes. gave me the, the tape with good songs on it. They didn't want any of the performances on it, and uh, and then and then when I met them, we shook on it. I thought I loved them as people. You know, properly just in a meeting of it. What well, I get they came down a Thursday after it, one o'clock in the afternoon, and they were amazing. And I just thought oh, I'm going to sign them. You know. Yes, but as you had this, then sort of hit the jackpot Vegas style. Your own sort of. <laughs> consumption of drugs and drinks sort of are, are kind of consuming your life though aren't they at this stage it's kind of out of is it out of control by then yeah big time yeah it's like you know i mean it was snowing every day you know <laughs> <laughs> so were you because in the book you, you you know it's kind of a it's a strange relationship you have during that period because obviously this amazing success you've done it and at the same time there's just inner turmoil so it must have felt really weird uh, I mean, I was uh, I was out of control. I mean, I mean, I mean, I had some good nights with them when I first signed them. Until I I ended up overdosing in February '94 in, in America. I got put in Cedar Sinai, and uh, and I remember waking up going, "Oh, <laughs> it can't go on." Do you know what I mean? I mean, I wasn't in take, trying to take my life. I was just taking too many. Yeah. But I was just, but at the end of the day, I was like, this can't go on, you know, because I've always got an agenda really deep down and it's a bit like, I wanted to make creation big, you know, I wanted to have this legendary company and and sign great bands, that was all attention, you know what I mean? So there was a variety of other, because I remember sort of hearing Eddie Izzard once talking about his life and 
a lot of it was kind of dealing with his kind of childhood and I think his mother died and he was he was always kind of looking for some sort of replacement love so you didn't god this sounds a bit much but you didn't you didn't have that kind of same feeling that god I'm so driven because I've got this kind of this thing that that's kind of pushing me on and I can't stop I love that. yeah I mean I think the fact that you know I had such a a violent childhood ultimately you know what I mean I was like my dad would batter me and put me in hospital a couple of times and he threw me out when I was 14 and then he threw me out when I was 16. I right after my 16th birthday, I ended up having to go and live with Bobby for about a year because my man threw me out of the house. I wasn't even that bad a kid. My dad's just a bully. My dad's right. a bully, you know what I mean? But I, you know, I, I, was, I was a bit obnoxious, I accept that. But I was, I was, shouldn't have been landing up in the hospital battered, you know, and that no. happened times, you know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, it's just, it's just, yeah, I probably was driven a bit to show people that I could do it, you know what I mean? But but you get older and it's just about the music, really. Do you know the thing is, David, because you're so obsessed with that early 80s thing, I wanted to make that point to you. What I am, to put me in context, man, I'm a fanzine kid that started a record label that found he was good at it. That's the story, really. I'm yes. the same somebody like Jerry Thackeray. Jerry had the legend fanzine. I had communication blur fanzine I started a record label and I had a business thing going on and I made it work but I'm really a fanzine kid that just happens to be able to run a record company that's kind of mad yes interesting so in your John Major years that we loved so much up to to 97 so were you just kind of literally holding on just to the kind of the, the gig that was happening with Oasis were you just kind of elsewhere well, what was brilliant about Oasis is they were brilliantly managed by a guy called Marcus Russell, right? He's a brilliant manager, right? And uh, so I get a lot of credit for the management of the band. The truth is, it was Marcus. I, I, I mean, I completely oversaw releasing the records and marketing the records, right? But I didn't manage the band. And because I had... It was the only time in creation, I'd say that I was always cleverer or smarter or more business than the managers, right? But Marcus, he was all these things over me. So, and I already had proven that I could do it with somebody like Primals or Valentine's or all these other bands. So you had this guy that could could have big hits, plus this brilliant manager, and then you had a brilliant, brilliant band. So it was a combination of all the right things, you know? And I guess you had Sony as well that held a certain amount of... Yes, so then, you know, so, I mean, everyone must mention this. Um, New Labour comes in, 97. By then, had you slightly t- clear... I don't know. Did you, did you yeah. clear yourself up by then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was sober, David, from... When, after I had overdosed in Los Angeles and I'd get flown back, uh, I was back in the country early, maybe June or something like that. I was in LA for a couple of months getting better. And then... I came back and then I was in rehab for a bit. And then I really, really, by the end of the year, end of night, about October, November 94, I was back in command again, you know. And, uh, but I was sober, so it was a lot better. And then, how, and this is a good story, nobody, you're literally the first person I've ever told us. Do you know the guy that's, that's, that's in a coma? Kate Garraway's husband? Yes. You get, I'm gonna blow your mind, right? I was at Nebworth, and this guy, Derek Draper, comes on up to me, right, and goes, hi, I'm for the Labour Party, right? 
are you Alan McGee? Yeah. Um, he goes, are you Alan McGee that's a member of the Labour Party? I went, yeah, I'm. And I went, you've cashed my cheque for the last two or three years and not sent me my little membership or anything. We'll sort it, we'll sort it. So I didn't think any more of it. That was Saturday at Nebworth. Monday in the office, I get a phone call. It's Margaret McDonough from the Labour Party, the General Secretary of the Labour Party, uh, David Wright, or Alan McGee. And I'm like, oh, God, it's a big hitter. Hey, are you that guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're coming round. So anyway, she gives me the card and blah, blah, blah. And then I'm thinking, well, she's going to ask me for something. And she, she says, look, we're trying to get in, blah, blah, blah. Will you help? And I'm like, of course I'll help. Yeah, blah, blah. So and she, goes, she goes, okay, can we get... And the Labour Party conference was that next weekend. This is the Monday. Can you we can we get Oasis for uh, the the youth party conference at the weekend? I went well. I, I don't think you're going to get Oasis because they've just all had a punch up and come back into the country. But I'll phone Noel up because Noel's Labour. So um, so uh, I uh, sorry, that's just somebody pinged me there. So um, so I. Uh, Sorry, I'm, I'm lost my train of thought. Labour. Um, what was she saying? Party. You were talking about this. So she basically says to me, I, so, so I phoned Noel up, uh, he's a, a big Labour guy, and I went, do you want to get up on stage for, for the Labour Party at the weekend? But we didn't know any of them at this point. Now, I just proposed to them as like, you know, say that we're behind them, blah, blah, blah. And he phoned me back the next day, and went, look, I'm too knackered, I've just come back to that American tour. Because I'm in Liam and falling out. Do you remember over the house? Yes. And then back off the tour. So he goes, he goes, I'm I'm too done in by all this stuff. Uh, just give them a platinum disc or something. Go on, give them it. I went, all right, okay. So I get a platinum disc to Tony Blair, Oasis, ten times platinum or whatever it was at the time. It was a lot, right? And uh, I showed up, and you had them all there, and they were all quite bizarre. Not what you'd think. Do you know what I mean? You know, like you know, real lovies, right? And I was like, oh, really? Okay, whatever, right. And and that was the beginning of how, how it all went down. They then, I, I, was, I was in touch with them quite a lot. And then they won. I, I was at Royal Festival Hall. I went along uh, with Kate to the Royal Festival Hall and we were at Royal Festival Hall and Portillo lost. It was fucking amazing, right? <laughs> and then about two in the morning, they put me in charge of Mick Hucknall. They'd said to me, will you just take care of Mick Hucknall? And I was like, really? And Mick Hucknall was hanging out with me, but leching after every blonde woman in the room, right? Anyway, I was in charge of Mick Hucknall, right? And uh, and then and then about a week later, I got a phone call from Jeffrey Robinson. Do you remember him? Yes, the uh, new late new one. Remember, he got thrown out. But anyway, yes. he was in charge of the Treasury at the time, right? So he, he, it's like Jeffrey Robinson from the treasury to Alan McGee in the office. And they're all looking at me. And I picked the, picked the phone up, David, and I was like, hello. And he went, yeah, blah, 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 it's Jeffrey here. Right? We want to get Britain back to work. We want you to spearhead it for us and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, the people that buy our records probably don't want to work. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I kind of went on like that. So, so I kept turning things down. That was the first thing they offered me. And then they offered to, they, they, they offered to put me in charge of the, the, the music uh, industry task force, right? And I said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to, blah, blah, blah. So I turned it down. I turned up loads of other things down that they were kept asking me. And then, uh, and then, 
and then they said, well, you go on the creative industries task force, and it was Paul Smith, Branson, Robert Defro, Gail Rebuck. I was the music guy, blah, blah, blah. So I went on that. I suppose if I was being honest, David, my ego got the better of me, and I thought, this is quite cool, right? So I went on the creative industries task force, and uh, and then I went on, I eventually went on the music industries task force, and that's where I changed the law. So I was sitting with all these total squares. I mean, some of them are good people, right? You know what I mean? Rob Dickens, I love to this day. Good, good guy. You should do a podcast with Rob. He's brilliant, right? And uh, But they were oh, none of these guys wanted to pass the New Deal for musicians. And that was musicians getting benefits. Now, you, people don't, the government don't even want people to have benefits anymore. But back in the 90s, we managed to get something through that if you were a musician and you showed up with your bass guitar, you could get benefits, David. That yes. was the... 10 years and I passed that law. It was quite funny when I passed it out. I was in this uh, I was in this committee thing and everybody else voted down. I think George Martin said he's he was a Tory. I like George and Everson, but he's a he's an old Tory and he it's too easy. It's got to be hard for musicians. They all wanted it to be hard. Right. He's right. And then and Rob Dickens said, who's my pal, right? Rob Dickens said it was it wasn't this easy for Rod Stewart just getting benefits. And he was Rod Stewart's A&R man at the time, right? And, uh, and, this is, and this is the brilliance of government when you really see it up this close, right? Because, you know, it's the one time in my life I was really in, in the middle of it. And we're sitting in this mad sort of square in uh, whatever, the, whatever it was, somewhere in Whitehall. And Chris Smith, the, the culture secretary, just at that point, it get voted down by the people in the committee. Eight two. There was ten people on it, right? I was one of the people. I proposed it, and it got voted down. Chris Smith, this is the genius of when when the when the government are right. He turned around. Well, that's passed. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? There's a guy that voted with me, John Glover, who was the head of the managers, right? And I was, in, I don't know what I was, but I was, I was, I don't know what my title was, but but um, we passed it. Do you know what I mean? We passed it. You know, and then that was a huge thing. So that was big. Uh, around that same time, we went to Downing Street, which everybody goes, oh, you went to Downing Street. The, tr- the truth is, David, I don't regret that. I'm not supposed to, because he went on bombed Iraq, which is a terrible fucking thing he'd done, right? Stupid. I know Tony Blair still. I mean, I saw him about a year ago. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't regret it, because it was like... It was, it was interesting. Do you know what I mean? You've got to understand where I come from. I come to Govan Hill in Glasgow. Yes. And I grew up. Well, I, I suppose I was the same. I mean, we'd spent, you know, from 97, 97, no, 79, um, you know, under Thatcher, under Major. And it was just like, and Labour kept, you know, bringing someone up who was kind of never going to get in from, you know, Michael Foote to Neil Kinnock. Yeah. And then, you know, Tony Blair. And it was just like, my God, at last, there might be some yeah. chance okay. of this. I mean, I, that that night that happened, I still t- I can remember that that night in the morning and just thinking, God, at last, it's not a Conservative government, you know. Yeah, and uh, he was brilliant at that point. Tony was great, and uh, I was involved with him right up to the end of the nineties. Um, and then he went on and he bombed Iraq, and then you're just like he despaired. Yes, point. it was it was all over. So how do you know when you were talking about uh, Oasis in America? Because that's the one thing that often finishes bands off. Did they have that same experience that most people do when they go over there and go, oh God, this is going terribly wrong? I mean, what was their experience? Well, it was like that. But by the end of it, they were they were in the last few Oasis records in the two thousands, the 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 noughties, 
they were like, they'd regularly do two or three nights in Madison Square Garden and two or three nights at Hollywood Bowl. They got pretty big. When I put out More Than Glory, it got to number four in the American charts. Wonderwall got to two. Don't Look Back in Anger got to about five in America. So they were big. They weren't, we did about three and a half million, four million words of stories in, in America. It was big, but it wasn't Nirvana, man. It wasn't 12 million. It was four million, you know what I mean? But it was still good, you know? Yes, I know. That's, um, yes. But but then as the decade goes on, what happens at the end of it and then the next, the noughties period, sort of, because that's when you you sort of, the creation, you, you form pop tones, don't you? Yeah, but I felt like with Sony towards the end of the 90s, you know what I mean? You know, there was like, I just, there was lots of things. It was just, uh, I mean, essentially, you know, there was like a lot. When I got, I got, I finally got fed up with them because we'd made them so much money, David, right? Uh, we'd sold somewhat 65 million Oasis records in the 90s. And, uh, and we were investigating them on lots of different things. Do you know what I mean? They, they paid out and stuff like that. But it was getting murky. I wasn't into it. And then, and then this one guy who, who actually had been in a good band, Mark Chong, he'd been in Einstein, Einstein's at Neubatten, right? Uh, one in an early incarnation, but he'd ended up running the indie part for the indie labels of um, of a, what do you call him? I'm getting pinged by Sean Ryder, actually. That's his ping. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, he was running uh, LRD and he turned around to me and said, oh, use, I said, oh, we need a million pounds to promote Oasis and Scream new records, and I've made them so much money. Every year they would come and take 10 million out of the company. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I mean, like it would be like, we maybe made about 20 million or something like that, and, and I'd have 10 million and they'd have 10 million. They were t- I was making them a lot of money. We were also 7% of the, the whole of the music business. Oasis, that's just Oasis. We were like 7% of the market share of the music business. So I knew they were putting that into their own thing. And that, and that bumps their share price. So it was like, we'd made them arguably a billion, but we'd made them hundreds of millions of pounds, right? And just in sheer capital. And I knew all that because I understood it. And uh, so I was getting pissed with it. And then eventually when they asked me to put more million and I was like, do you know what? Fuck you. Because at the, t- at the height of the 90s, right, at the height of Morning Glory, Branson contacted me, right? And, uh, and, and tried to poach me and offered me a £5 million signing on fee. Something I regret not doing. But my ego, David, was too big, right? Because I'd never been really big. I'd never, at that point, in the mid-90s, I was the biggest, the biggest record guy in the world at that point. And, and I, only not for very long, for one year. You know? yeah. But I was the guy. And Branson came in and said, come and start fee two. I'll give you five million quid. And Dick, my partner, who runs Wichita, give him five million come and start it you got 300 million pounds signing fund and i was like do you know what david my ego was too big i should have just went for the money there's a one time in my what my life my ego was bigger than the, the financial part of me and i was just like no i'm enjoying this too much and i didn't i didn't do it you know should i just had the money because sony owed me a lot of money you know they owed me 14 or 15 million and and i, I got that you know what i mean but i was like I could have had that and the fine, but I didn't do it. 
Yes. And did you were you good on on the paperwork and the maths? Did you did you understand all those kind of figures? Because often that's that's what yeah. bands don't often have a clue yeah. what they're doing. I'm pretty good at it. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I mean, I manage some bands now. I mean, I've been doing the skateboard deal for the Mondays and uh, a book deal for Sean. And I don't use a lawyer. I just do it myself. Do you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm OK. I'm not amazing legal yes. guy. I understand the contract. Yes. So pop tones, what was your experience with that? Oh, that was a trip, man. I would probably, if, if I was being honest, it's probably, it was an idea that was too far ahead of itself. Do you know what I mean? It was an internet record label concept in an old setting. And it just was what it was, you know what I mean? Yes. It was, it was some good records. I mean, Hives, Cosmic Rough Riders, some of the indie records we put out. But um, it was probably a little bit too far ahead of where, where, the, where the thing was going, which was ultimately iTunes, do you know what I mean? You know? Yeah. So was there ever a moment where you just were going to ever walk completely away from the music industry and you thought, I Try, just don't... I don't think I can do it. You know what I mean? I tried. I went down to bring Charlie, my daughter, up in Wales because um, we, we, we bought that house in 97. And Kate's based there now. She, 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 uh, she does her thing and with horses and all that. And Charlie's, Charlie's, going to, Charlie's going to art school now in, in Manchester and I'm in London. And... Uh, and, and it got to about 2008, and I was like, I'd been doing it for years. I've been doing it since 1980 when I came to London. And I went, let's go down to, I'm going to bring Charlie up, and, which was a great five years. And then it got to 2013, and Charlie said, I don't want you to take me to school anymore, Dad, because it's uncool. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I was like, oh, what am I going to do? So then I wrote a book, David. Uh, and the book did good. Uh, and off the back of the book, there's a film. Yes. Which I on. Uh, we, um, uh, Ewan Bremner, Nick Moran, Danny Boyle. And then they, and then they, and then because I was in and out of London, and I was, I was kind of, my profile was up because of the book, because it was a, at that Christmas, it was a number one book. Um, at that point, uh, then I started, then all the old bands that I knew, Mary Chain, Wilco Johnson, Cast, um, Las Vegas. Uh, and they all contacted me and, uh, and said, were you, were you managers? So within about a year, I had a load, I, I was back in London managing bands and that's what I do, you know? Yes. And did you, did you enjoy writing your book? Yeah, 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 it was cool. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was, it was yeah, you know, I was amazed that I actually had stories there. I think if I had to write that book now, I might struggle with it. Do you know what I mean? You know? Yeah. But, but it was all there at one point, you know what I mean? It was all in my memory, you know? I know. Because it's often the thing that people do, which is quite cathartic, you know, that kind of, they kind of, as they're writing it, they suddenly realise that event and, and it feels differently now than it did when it happened. And sometimes you can process it and let go. I just wondered if you had many moments like that where you were like, oh, this is, oh actually, I feel better now. Yeah, I mean, it got, you know, it was, I mean, I enjoyed doing the book, you know, but um, I was more amazed that somebody wanted to make a film of it, you know what I mean, you know, but that ended up, because Evan Welsh loved uh, the book, and then, and then he went, the music biz train spotting, do you know what I mean? Yes. And, and then did... it became real, you know what I mean? I mean it, it became a thing, you know what I mean? Eventually, Danny Boyle loved it, and then Danny Boyle went, I'm going to go get you the money, and Danny Boyle has got it funded, you know? 
which is amazing. So where, do you ever sort of get together with other people like, you know, your Jeff Travis's and various other label folk and just go, bloody hell, mate, we've been doing this gig for so such a long time. I just wondered what those, if you do uh, ever have, have those moments. I don't, I don't really do that uh, because I'm just, I mean, my friends are in the music business are more like um, Sean Ryder, Bobby, Andrew for the Primals, you know, people like that, you know. Basically, people that have been in the same journey and come from the same background as me, you know. I mean, that's kind of people that are kind of yes, people, you know. And last year you were doing a tour, weren't you? A sort of tour. Yeah, yeah. Q and A you know. And did you enjoy? Did you enjoy that? Yeah, 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 it was great. Yeah, I did about fifty-two shows. It was oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, I'm really missing it this year, David, because of COVID. Because I, you know, I did about maybe fifty Monday shows, cash shows last year. And they were both out in tour, and then I did about fifty of my own show. So that's three hundred, about hundred shows in three hundred days. So I was doing, I was out a couple of times a week doing, doing music and doing, doing, doing entertainment. But now it's like there's nothing. So I, I did the whole lockdown down in, down in London. Yeah. And I, I went, I sussed out, David, that if it got to eight by by April fourth, I had to go and collect something in the town. And then I realised, I thought I'd get arrested or something, do you know what I mean? And then I, I walked all the way into the town, collected stuff and come back. And I was like, oh, I didn't get... Then ever since, I've just been walking. So it's been great for me, you know. Yes. And what's, what's your obsession with Adidas? Oh, I just like it. I, I, I mean, uh, my friend Gary, um, Gary Aston, he, he is the guy that, that invented Special. It just sends me clothes, you know what I mean? Right, because I always see you in pictures. So look, yeah. what would you, I mean, you're, you know, obviously losing the parent was horrendous. Is your dad still alive? Yeah, 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 yeah. He, um, he, we're not close. I saw him a few years ago. I think he just thinks, he's like come to that old Glasgow thing. Unless you come to Glasgow, I don't think anybody can understand that. But it's beyond when men were men. And I think he just, some, you know, effeminate, you know what I mean? <laughs> and just lastly, are you amazed that so many of the people that you knew are still alive? Some of them are dead. I mean, Denise died the other day. Yes. And out of that album, Scream of Death, because so many people have died, David. Wetherill, Jimmy Miller, Throb, Denise. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's, that's four people of that record that are gone, you know what I mean? That is a, that is quite a lot, isn't it? That is quite horrendous. I mean, what would you what would you say to an eighteen year old self then, who was kind of possibly starting out on that that kind of road? Because your your attitude changed quite a lot, isn't it? Because you were very hedonistic in the early years, weren't you? You're sort of very straightforward. It was drugs. Because remember, in the seventies and possibly the eighties, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Somehow, it just all got forgotten, didn't it? Later on. <laughs> <laughs> what what would I tell my eighteen year old self? I mean. The truth is, I mean, because I listen to your show the whole time, you know, I mean, I, so I've asked myself that. I think I've done as good as I could do, really, with it. You know what I mean? It's like, I look back at it and go, there's things that slightly should have taken care of the cash better. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm still wealthy. I'm not trying to say I'm not. But I probably should have just, taking a bit more care with the, with the cash. But that's me being Scottish and penny pinching, do you know what I mean? You know, it, was, it worked out okay. I think I did as best anybody could 
from my background. Do you know what I mean? You know, because it was like I didn't come from a business background and a money background. I taught it to myself. And I did mess up a few things. Overall, I won, but yes. some of it I did mess up. Maybe just sometimes pay more attention to the detail in the game. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because the lucky thing is, and I realised this when you started listening, I think, shit. And I thought, actually, no one's ever said anything bad about you, have they? No, uh, that's all right. Some people don't like me, and that's okay. Do you know what I mean? But I'm like, I like when somebody says I'm an idiot anyway. I kind of like it. I'm like, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> but there aren't many. I mean, most people are like, oh, yeah, that was a really good experience. Because you've been in a business, whatever business, mostly, you know, that, that person has to become a, a character that isn't always that brilliant to survive. Yeah. But yeah. you haven't had that, have you? You haven't been that monster particularly. No, I mean, we've done okay with our bands. I mean, my thing about it is that, you know, it's like, you know, don't ever steal for the bands but from the corporations, it's fair game. And that's what I've always been like. I don't care what I do to Sony or Universal or Virgin or any of these companies. I'll, I'll just take them to cleaners if I can do it. But I don't mess the bands about. Yes. And the bands kind of like me for that, do you know what I mean? Because frankly, there's not much to steal from a band, is there? No, well, I suppose there could be, but yeah. the amount of money that a band gets individually yeah. is quite small. And we've all, I mean, that story of Les from the Bay City Rollers is quite horrendous, yeah. isn't it? I know, I know. I, I, I mean, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty big bass. I love most of the Scottish bands, but I actually love bass out rollers. Well, you wouldn't have punk without them, you know. No, I, no. Well, I was friends with Joey Ramon, and you know, Saturday night, uh, uh, is a ripoff. No, no, wait, wait, no. His story, sorry, Bob is a ripoff of Saturday night. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I know. Uh, <laughs> so, so it was the Bay City Riders started. Well, I know the Stooges. These punk bands, I mean, that's the one thing that I get totally starstruck at. I can be with any of them, the Gallicers, the Roses, any of these people, you know, and, and I know them all and I'm friends with them all, and I'm totally fucking fine with that. And then I can be next to Charlie Harper and I get excited. <laughs> <laughs> or, or Johnny Rotten, or, I just get excited with these guys, you know, I mean, because that's when I was a kid, that's what I grew up with, you know. Yes. There you go. But walking. I know Will Self, the writer, was very big on walking, wasn't he? He sort of saved his life. And I know Sean Ryder a few years ago got really into the gym and fitness. So obviously yeah. that is something that happens when you get to nearly 60. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has that... You might be getting invited to the Zoom party, David. Oh, that'd be marvellous. I'm kind of half thinking I should have a Zoom party for my 60th birthday. Do you know what I mean? God. There's been quite a few. But anyway, Alan, this has been fantastic. We need I'm looking forward to hearing that bit. Yeah. It's good, good meeting you. It's yes, it's good. Amazing, David. I love it. I love yeah, it. well, I've, you know, as you can tell, I'm I'm still well, it's interesting, just briefly. I mean, that it's quite nice not just to reminisce about the bands I knew, but actually I've been sort of listening to a lot of the bands I missed the first time around. Because because when I grew up, which is kind of a working class background. You know, it was a big thing to buy a record. You know, you had to save some money, you bought the record, you, yeah. you know, and then another record would come along and sometimes you just thought, fuck, that's gone. You know, that band's gone. You know, it's like, so then you go back and you think, the 80s did have a lot of music, didn't it? I mean, that's the thing that kind of... I, mean, sort of... I, it was, I love the 80s. I mean, the 80s, it was just so full of... It's cultural, it was so great, you know what I mean? And I mean, the problem with the whole culture now 
we've got Instagram culture ultimately, do you know what I mean? You know, and it's a bit like, I keep thinking, maybe I don't get this. Maybe the kids get a bigger, a big, they get, maybe they get a bigger, uh, maybe they see behind it much more than I do. And I've realised there's nothing behind it. It's all, it's all front. That's what the whole game is now. Yes. Instagram culture. It's just about the way you look and what, what pe- how people perceive you. That's as deep as it goes at the moment. So just, did you see that um, film, the Fire Festival film, where they were putting yeah, on this? Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you saw those characters, I mean, you must have felt like, God, we're vaguely in the same industry, but we are like a million miles apart, aren't we? Well, uh, I mean, no, they're just dishonest. The guy that ran that was just a crook, do you know what I mean? And uh, it's like, you know, I mean, it's easy to be a crook. It's just bollocks, you know I mean? It's just ripping off people who can't afford it. So I've never done it, but... Um, but, you know, I mean, it's just, that's what it is, you know. I mean, it's just, you know, I've, and I've met loads of people like that in the music business that have just, you know what I mean, you know. I mean, an unnamed massive guy once, he owned a merch company in the early 90s, and he went, when you're signing these bands, make sure you keep the merchandising rights. If you do that, Alan, you can walk out of here with a million dollars. And this was when I was about 30, you know what I mean? I was just in America, and I was like, he's a really big guy now, right? You would know the name if I t- said it, who it was. And I was like, and essentially, that's just like rip your bands off and you can have a million. Not good, is it? It's not good karma. <laughs> anyway, look, you better get and speak to Sean. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good seeing you. I'll see you. Right. Be cool. Oh, I will. Bye. See you Bye. later. Bye. And that was me in conversation with Alan McGee. A big thank you to Alan for giving me the time for that interview. If you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. Also, all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. All you have to do is C86show. There are hundreds, um, any indie bands from the golden decade that was the 80s. You'll probably find them there and lots that you've never even heard of. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.